speak to you this morning uh, about something that has been really on my heart that I've been sharing often as I've been traveling. Uh, and it is on revival, but it's specifically on sovereignty and human agency and kind of how these two things intersect. But just before I do that, um, I got a bit distracted during a few minutes into the worship time, maybe halfway through, because one of my very best friends, Zach Lambert, and his dad drove up from all the way from Heston, Kansas, to be here. And so, Grant, that story you were sharing, actually, uh, I had, like I said, several words are very clear. And Zach and I were housemates, and I had this really faint word, and I was talking with him about it. And he was actually the one nudging me, like, no, that's the one you should share it. Do you remember that? And so... I was like, no, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that because, you know, if you ever, how many of you have been to one of Randy's meetings before or, or at least seen it online, seen him ministering, and you know typically what he does in some sort of fashion is whether it's his GSSM students, people who have been on a ministry trip overseas before, something of that nature, he'll call lots of people to come up in a line and he'll say, give your one strongest word. Now, if you're, you know, in my position at the time, 20 years old, fresh into the school, Randy Clark's your hero, you don't want to give your weakest word the one chance you get in front of Randy, you're like, I want to impress him, you know? You get in the flesh a little bit with that. And so I had lots of them that were very clear. I'm like, all right, I'm going to be on it if I give one of these. Then this, this extremely faint impression, I thought, that's really probably not the Lord. But he kept nudging me to give it, and I said, okay. Gave it, turned out to be Randy, and the Lord healed. He had three herniated cervical discs. He was praying for a really large man in Nigeria who fell forward, on top of him, and when he fell back, he said he actually could hear them kind of crack when his head hit the ground. It was it really, yeah, a really excruciating pain for I think about eight or nine months, and um, it was an amazing thing with what the Lord did. Uh, but anyway, I need to get into this, otherwise I'm going to be really not tracking well with the time here. So I have a lot of notes. Uh, forgive me for probably having to speak pretty fast, uh, but if I don't, then I won't be able to get in everything I want to get. In with you guys. So uh, the first thing is you might be kind of wondering, okay, because I get questions a lot as I'm traveling and speaking, particularly on sort of these subjects, because some of them seem a bit kind of lofty theologically sometimes. And what we want to do is kind of take some of these things that we're not going to be able to summarize all of it within a 50-minute time frame. These are kind of subjects that theologians have went back and forth on and wrestled with for decades, uh, hundreds of years, as a matter of fact. And um, I'll give you one word, and you can look this word up in the dictionary that actually explains pretty well how we need to view sovereignty and human agency together and uh, understand them theologically, and it's the word antinomy. And if you look that up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it will say a contradiction between conclusions which seems equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. Uh, But if you're applying this to biblical theology, Uh, we need to understand that it really is not a contradiction. What it actually is is two truths that stand at really opposing ends of the spectrum, and they seem like one would cancel the other out, but they really don't. They're not contradictory, even though they're paradoxical. Does that make sense? And so it's sort of like the fact that there is the judgment of God, that he is judge, and at the same time, he's fully love, and he can't be fully love without being fully judged, and he can't be fully judged without being fully loved and gracious, and there's all these different aspects of his nature, and we see some of those intersecting when it comes to revival, and um, another thing that I, I have actually spent a great bit of time dealing with, and tomorrow night, for those of you who are here, I want to really want to make space to get a lot of questions and answers in, because uh, that's always, I think, is a really 
powerful learning time. It allows us to address a lot of things that we normally don't uh, get to. Or you may be wondering about some things that I never bring up and that you'll get the opportunity to, and maybe I can help speak into it. If I don't know, I'll just say I don't know, but I'll do my best. Um, one of the things that I also like to address often is I've, I've uh, had a lot of people inquire about, well, why should we really desire revival? Or what is it? You know, have any of you ever kind of wondered that at all? It seems, especially in the charismatic circle, it seems like sometimes kind of like this abstract, you know, thing. And for me, after I came to the Lord, my roots were in the Pentecostal denomination, in one particular Pentecostal denomination. Uh, my roots were there. And I know for me, revival was not something that I really thought I should want or care about. Because revival for us in that context, first of all, we thought it was only for us. It was only for the Pentecostals. Uh, it was only for this one denomination. We thought, well, you know, it's not for the Baptists. It's not for the Catholics. It's not for the Anglicans. It's not for the Presbyterians. It's not for the Methodists. We're the ones that are in the right. And we're the ones that God comes and, and touches and visits. And the rest of those over there, they're all, you know, backslidden or, or whatever. And what I would experience and knew to be revival after coming to the Lord was, okay, we're going to have a revival meeting from this time to this time. And this is the time frame we're setting for the Lord to come and move. And we've sent out the speaker contract to him. He's agreed. I'm going to come and move from here to here and give me a nice honorarium. Then I'm going to go back home. And we would have this revival meeting and sort of just have a bunch of people come up and speak in tongues at the altar and cry and leave and come back the next Sunday. And nothing would be really any different whatsoever. And that is not revival. Uh, and I, I really wish we had the time. I might speak into this more tomorrow night to define a little bit more of what that is. Uh, but we should, first of all, desire revival because an authentic revival is a genuine, spontaneous, spiritual awakening. It's literally the church is on a mentality of life support and God comes with his breath and brings about divine resuscitation. It's think back to Ezekiel standing before the valley of dry bones where if you look at that word dry in the Hebrew, it, it, it is so dry that they are as dust. This is tremendous deadness, and the breath of God comes and lifts us out of that state of slumber. He takes that, our dustiness and literally erects it into an army. This is what's happening in times of uh, revival, and we should desire revival because we cannot separate any facet or aspect of the triune God from who he is. Everything that he does, every action, every healing, every prophecy, everything that's from him, it's not just something he does ever. Everything that you see the Lord do as an action is an extension of who he is. It's flowing out from the river of his heart. Everything that he does. And so it's not, oh, we want revival, but it's just sort of this thing that he does that's nice and we laugh or fall down. No, you're, you're literally experiencing the tangible nature of the reviving one, the same one who comes and touches and revives your spirit at salvation, who revives your body when he heals you, is now reviving your spirit man. And out from that place, genuine revivals and awakenings you see not only come and touch the church, but produce powerful overflow into society. And you see businesses prospering, and you see the socioeconomic climate being reversed and tremendous blessing. And you see, later I'll tell some of the fruit of what happens and things like in the Welsh revival, but in short, this is why we should be desiring this. So two of the most popular figures in church history are Charles Finney. How many of you have ever heard of Charles Finney? 
Good. Uh, by the way, if you haven't heard of any of these guys or books or things I'm mentioning, um, and, I, and I'm speaking fast and you don't get to write them down, just come up to me and I'll give you a list of good things to reference and people to look into, good books to read on some of these subjects. So Charles Finney, and another would be Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards, as you know, was... Uh, kind of the one that the Lord used to spearhead and lead the first Great Awakening in the 1700s, and he actually is known now as sort of historically the chief authority on revival. The primary theologian of revival would be Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Finney was a lawyer who was very miraculously converted. Uh, He was praying in the woods, felt embarrassed that he would be caught praying. He didn't want his peers to see him uh, partaking in this thing that all, all of sort of his legal crowd viewed as, as, you know, you're really mentally inferior for believing in this stuff. And he felt embarrassed, gets back to his home, and then comes under such conviction that, oh my gosh, Lord, I can't believe I was embarrassed that I would be caught praying. And Jesus literally steps in to his, to his room. And it was such a powerful experience of conversion where he was weeping and weeping and waves of God's love coming over him. He wrote in his autobiography that, it seemed as though I bathed the feet of Christ with my tears, is what Finney said. And out of that place, Finney uh, became known as the father of modern revivalism. He was the first one to ever do what we know now as an altar call, invented the mourner's bench, so many other things really ahead of his time. Uh, but something really interesting about these two men, they held two completely opposing views as to what revival was. So Edwards believed entirely in the full sovereignty of God as it relates to revival. And so Edwards believed there's nothing really that we can do whatsoever to make any of this happen. And when it comes, we can do things, we can have principles set in place that steward it, but it's all entirely up to the Lord. Finney was the complete opposite, which is very very interesting. They were both equally effective with both completely different theologies. How many of you know God can use you despite, you you don't have to have an exact theological agreement. It doesn't make a difference for the Holy Spirit. Now, a heresy, that's a different thing altogether. Uh, but they had very different theologies when it came to revival. Finney believed, and I think personally that it was because of the fact that he was a lawyer. Because even in the way that Finney preached, he would come and basically set down his Bible and lay out a case for Jesus and ask people, well, do you believe that he's the Lord or not? Because I've just laid out everything for you that he clearly is. And if they would say no, then he said, all right, then you've resolved yourself before heaven and earth that you reject the Lord Jesus, and he'd leave. (laughs) So Finney believed we have these principles in Scripture, um, and you might see that in, uh, um, I believe it's, I want to say Second Chronicles, where it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. This is what Finney believed as opposed to Edward. So Finney believed we have these set principles laid out in the word of God, and if we meet these principles, God has no choice but to come. And what I want to propose is that the truth of how we should be contending for revival falls directly in the middle. It's not an either or, it's a both and when it comes to the moving of the Holy Spirit, revivals, outpourings, awakenings. And the reason is this. There's danger, I believe, in both, view, both extreme views of the sovereignty of God. One is an over-realized view of sovereignty. One is an under-realized view of sovereignty. An under-realized view of sovereignty is very dangerous because it brings about the temptation that we can work it up, that we can bring about the move of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can organize external results of a spiritual awakening, but you cannot ever organize a spiritual awakening. 
These, these things are of the Lord. Acts chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it's a kairos moment that God ordains, always typically related to thousands and thousands of other threads woven together, situations happening all over the world at the same time, people praying at specific locations, the same prayers. They're all unaware that the others are doing it. And this is things that God can only orchestrate, that we can't bring about. A genuine move of the Holy Spirit cannot be manufactured by humanity. It comes from the Lord. And the danger of an underrealized view uh, that can even be dangerous if we lean too far into statements like, I am revival. Now, there's a truth in that. It's like Isaiah 6, 8, here I am, Lord, send me. There's a truth in the going, right? But there's a danger if we lean too far into that and we miss the fact that, well, there really is a sovereign element when it comes to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Now, the danger of the overrealized view of sovereignty, that it is entirely the Lord. He's going to save who he wants to save. He's going to heal who he wants to heal. He's going to do what he wants to do, and we're just open whenever he wants to do it. Overrealized sovereignty is a very dangerous view because it breeds passivity rather than breeding the fruit of pursuit and passion. Because it simply says, all right, Lord, if you want to do it, we're open. And we forget God is never looking for openness. He's looking for brokenness. For a broken and contrite spirit, he's, he's Isaiah 57, 15, that says, speaks of the Lord reviving the spirit of the humble. And this is what the Lord is looking for, that we would be humble enough to say, you know what? We understand that you're sovereign, Lord, but we also understand, as Duncan Campbell said, that, that human agents are the vessels and the catalysts by which God brings about revivals and outpourings and awakenings. And Duncan Campbell was the instrument used in the Hebrides revival. Um, so truth is found in the middle of both of these aspects. And there's a story I want to tell you in just a moment from one of my favorite uh, revivals, I think one of the most powerful that happened in Argentina in 1949 uh, under the ministry of a man named Edward Miller. Just before I tell you that, I'll give you a quick story that kind of illustrates, okay, how does sovereignty and our human agency work in tandem together? And it's very simple, and it would just be anytime you get receive and act on a word of knowledge. Because if, or prophesy, or anytime, in fact, like I said, if right now I said, okay, turn and prophesy over the person next to you. If it's a genuine word from the Lord, you can't make that up. You can't manufacture it. So it's t entirely sovereign, right? It's totally initiated birth by the Holy Spirit. But you, being the recipient, have the responsibility, okay, I've got this seed from the Lord, now I have to plant it. And now the person's received the seed from God, God's chosen to deliver it, but they have the responsibility now, water it, nourish it, cultivate it, give it a good greenhouse so it can grow and flourish rather than suppressing it and letting the enemy come and steal the seed. Does that make sense? And so um, I'll give you a story if that's okay. You guys find this a quick story? So recently, um, let's see, when, when was VOA? October. Uh, September, October? Okay. Our, we have our, one of our Global Awakening conferences is uh, abbreviated VOA. It's called Voice of the Apostles. We hold it annually. Um, we were able to still hold it this year, thankfully, and, and able to put in regulations and all that. Um, but we held it in Woodbridge, Virginia. Um, about a week prior to this conference, earlier in the year, Randy grafted me into his seminary. And so in this class, one of the books we have to read is called The Essential Guide to Healing. Has anyone ever read that book with Randy and Bill Johnson authored together? If you haven't, it's a really uh, quick read, amazing book. Very, very simple, very practical, but powerful and Randy, in one of the chapters in this book, I was assigned to read it, he's describing when he first started 
kind of growing and healing, first learning about words of knowledge. And he travels to Africa to meet with some pastors on, and leaders with doctors, Heidi Roland Baker. And um, he's sitting down with them, and he's like, listen, guys, I'm learning about words of knowledge. I've heard you've been receiving so many of them. And I, I get them through feeling them and through impressions and this and this. And how do you guys get them? And they said, none of those ways. And so he's like, okay, I thought that was all that could happen. Well, what happens with you guys? And they said, we dream all of ours. We just dream, and God shows us locations and people, and they'll go, and then he'll say, maybe go and pray for this person who's the chief witch doctor in this village. They'll go and do it. He'll get healed, and then the village will come to the Lord. They dream all of their words of knowledge. And so I'm reading this, and, you know, I've been moving in that particular gift for a long time. Um, but I, as I'm reading this, I realized, wow, I think there's only been one time ever that I've had a dream of a word of knowledge. And I remembered it because it was uh, in Dayton, Ohio. There was a woman who I, I went to sleep the night before we were doing a healing meeting. I dreamed her name, saw a picture of a skull with a crack in it. Said that the woman comes forward at the end. I think her name was Maria. And years earlier, she was in a really abusive relationship. And she was thrown by her husband off of her porch. Her head hits the concrete. It fractured her skull, and now she has a metal plate in it. And long story short, God dissolved it completely healed it just in a matter of a few moments. It was really incredible. But so because of that, I remembered it. And I was pretty sure this is the only time I've ever dreamed a word of knowledge. So you have not because you asked not. And I said, okay, God, I want to start having more dreams. I want to have more of these. And I had one the, a few days later in Michigan. And um, later now, it's, we're a week out from VOA. I go to sleep, and I have another dream. And it's a uh, picture of a black leather jacket and it has, um, I don't know if you guys will know what this is, but if you have ever looked at anything with Greek mythology, I guess it doesn't really matter, but it had a red harpy sewn onto this black leather jacket. Underneath it was also sewn into the jacket, Brandon, and then cancer. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I, I was really stubborn about this for years, but I finally realized and learned, if you don't write it down, you will forget it. 99% of the time, right? And I don't know what it is with us. We're typically so stubborn to not want to write things down. And I was the same way for years. And I realized I can't keep doing this. And, you know, what was Einstein's definition of insanity is keep on doing the same thing and expect a different result. I can't just expect that I'm going to remember them if I don't try to do something to steward them a little better. So I woke up at maybe about 3 in the morning. And I thought, that was really weird. So it probably was God. And I wrote it down. Woke up the next morning. And, and um, I was thinking... Well, it's probably for VOA. It's just a few days away. And then I forgot about it. Later that afternoon, I went to go. I live right across the street from uh, one of our grocery stores in Pennsylvania called Wise. And I was going to get some sparkling water. Walking across to Wise, I get into the parking lot. And I see in front of me four huge biker guys, probably about, grand, at least your height, or maybe a little bit taller, like Hulk Hogan guys. And all of them have on these black jackets with the harpy sewn onto the back of it. And uh, they're all armed. They have chains wrapped around their tires and everything. Very intimidating-looking guys. Like, as you can see, I'm not a big guy. And so I'm seeing this, and my first thought was, oh, my goodness, that's what I saw in my dream. It really was the Lord. And then my second thought was, oh, God, no, not them. <laughs> and he's very spiritual, right? And so I'm thinking, Lord, please, no, please, no. But remember, it's sort of this sovereignty and human responsibility in tandem. If we're asking God for things, he does look to see, are you gonna, are, will you do something with what I gave you? Will you be responsible to go? Even when he puts you in situations, I love what Rachel was saying, we have to remember dignity isn't a fruit of the Spirit, right? 
He absolutely intentionally puts you in situations where you're totally in over your head so that you are forced to trust him. He, does, he loves you too much to let you rely on what you can do in your own strength. And so he puts you in situations where you have to see the strength of the Lord come through and his hand come and manifest his power, not what you can do in your human capacity. And uh, I absolutely did not want to go and talk to them. But you have to remember, again, speaking of sovereignty and human agency, remember the book of Revelation before John has his encounter where he sees the risen Christ. His eyes are like fire, his hair is like wool, his feet are like bronze. Before he has this encounter, he hears a voice behind him on the Isle of Patmos. And he turns to see who spoke to him. The same thing happened in the life of Moses, one of the greatest Old Testament encounters where he literally encounters I am himself in the form of the burning bush, remember? What happens first is he hears a voice speaking to him, and it says Moses turned aside to see who spoke. And then it initiated that encounter. And so it's like God is directing his attention. He's releasing things. He's mandating things. He's aligning things. But you have to be the one who says, okay, I'm going to turn aside. I'm going to see what's happening here. So he's given me this. I've asked for it. He's given it to me. But he gave it to me in a context that I didn't really appreciate, that I didn't want, that I was terrified of. I didn't want to do this. So this is one of the other secrets. I'm getting so off track here. But anyway, I might have, have to make this a part two for tomorrow night. I don't know. But um, I, feel, I feel like it's the Lord leading me. Uh, two pr- really primary vessels that God hides breakthrough, or in this case, revival in is a vessel of inconvenience and a vessel of offense. And if you remember, one of the most powerful examples is in uh, the book of First Kings, I believe, maybe First or Second Kings with Elijah and the widow at Zarephath, when he goes to her house and she comes to him and, and he tells her he's hungry and she basically says, listen, I only have enough to make this little bit of bread for me and my son and we're going to eat it and then we're going to die. And he just so offensively says, that's great, but I'm hungry too. Like, I, can you give me something? This total stranger showing up in the middle of a famine. Me and my son are going to die. Just seem, seemingly no empathy. And we have hindsight. We have the 2020 hindsight to see what happened afterwards, right? We get to see the other side. We see the miracle. We see that the jar of flour, the oil wasn't exhausted according to the word of the Lord. We see this, this supernatural provision. But we have to insert ourselves into the story put ourselves in her situation, she had no idea what was going to happen. And so now she has this decision, am I going to trust the word of the Lord that came through the prophet despite the fact that it is offensive, that it makes me uncomfortable? And so what God will do with situations like this is hide breakthrough intentionally within something that is so offensive to us that we risk missing it if we operate according to our values rather than heavenly values. And so these are many times the type of things, and I believe that I think after I leave here, I'm I'm praying for you guys. You might not want me to pray this, but I'm praying it anyway. I'm praying that God will put you in situations that scare you. I'm praying that he will set up divine encounters where you feel like, I cannot do this. Because it's only in that place that you realize that you really can, because it's not by my my power, but by his Holy Spirit that works through you. The same word of the Lord that came unto Zerubbabel is the same word to you. It's by his Holy Spirit. And so anyway, I, need, I imagine you guys are wondering what happened with the bikers. So I finally realized, okay, Brian, you've got to get over yourself. And it's kind of heart's pounding. And I go up to them. And before I could even say anything, one of the guys says, what do you want? And I'm like, nothing much. I just, you know. And you have to realize people are going to think you're nuts. They're just, they just are. They're going to think you're crazy. And so I said, listen, I know you guys are 
probably you're going to think I'm insane for telling you this, but I saw that harpy on your jackets in my dream last night. You know, they don't have context for any of this. It's like they're looking at me like, okay, go back to wherever asylum you've come out of and leave us alone. And I said, no, 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 I can prove it. I said, underneath this, I saw sewn onto the jacket, Brandon, which one of you is Brandon? And they turn and look at one of the guys, and he goes, who's asking? And I'm like, no one important. I'm not a a cop or anything. Don't worry. It's just, um, I said, I saw next to your name in this dream the word cancer. Do you have cancer? I believe the Lord wants to heal you. And it was a few seconds of silence where I didn't know, are they going to beat me up, kid at me? I don't know. I'm kind of comforted because, okay, at least we have some witnesses scattered around the parking lot. (laughs) And after this few seconds of silence, I was floored by what he said to me. He had tears come up in his eyes, and he said, no, I don't, and I know it was God that gave you that dream, even though I haven't spoken to him in 20 years, because when I stopped was when my mother passed away from cancer 20 years ago, and I said, well, Brandon, I think the Lord wants to heal your heart, and just then I had another word of knowledge that he had an injury in his L4 vertebra from all the years of bouncing up and down riding on the motorcycle, what I said, and he wants to heal your L4 vertebra. I prayed for him quickly. He healed that. And normally in that type of setting, what I kind of do as a transition is say something like, what God just did in that part of your body is the same thing he wants to do to make all of you whole. Before I could say anything, he just starts crying out in repentance. I mean, if I've ever heard a genuine someone turning back to the Lord, it was in that moment that I didn't have to prompt. And it, it resulted in not only him, but the rest of the guys, the other three, being led to the Lord. And I, they told me the name of their group and... and uh, I said, will you go and spread back this back to everybody? And I've just been told that Randy has a book coming out. I think next year he's including the story. And I was advised legally, don't say the name of their group. Um, and I guess I should change their, their real names too. But anyway, so I go back. Um, this probably won't happen. They, they'll never see this. Though I go back home. And I say, oh, that's an interesting, you know, group and symbol. And I Google them, and they're like number two on the FBI database of, of criminal biker gangs, dangerous, don't approach, we'll use lethal force. And I'm like shaking. And I'm like, oh, Lord, thank you that you didn't tell me that. I would have never done it. So that was really off track. All right, we've got about 25 minutes. Okay, I think I can speed through this. So that's just kind of an example of how these things happen and illustrates a lot of the other things that it comes time, oftentimes through manners that are offensive, that are very inconvenient for us, and we'll speak more into that tomorrow night. Uh, now, another thing, just before I tell you this story from the 49 revival in Argentina with Miller, is I, I want you to know how discouraged he was over the spiritual climate. Uh, the, the mission boards, all the major mission boards uh, in the U.S., where Miller was being sent out from, he was in Argentina, and he was from the U.S. He was kind of grew up in the things of the Spirit when he was really young, like uh, a year old. He was healed of an incurable heart condition, a hole in his heart through William Branham's ministry. Branham had a word for him. He was healed as a baby. And so he had grew up in these things. He wasn't a stranger to the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. But the denomination he was associated with and several other prominent mission boards in the U.S. had marked Argentina as, in their words, the least fruitful climate in the entirety of the Western Hemisphere for any productive uh, fruit of the gospel. It was the absolute worst. They're, the entire nation, they were led by a man named Juan Perrin, who was, had been given the nickname El Brujo, the warlock, who was literally spiritist, whose wife, Eva Perrin, deeply occultist. So if you're ever, you know, scared about who the president is, they're not occultist. 
They didn't do what these, this man and woman did, uh, Juan and Eva Perrin, who literally erected a satanic monument and was bringing literally the nation into demonic worship. Their, their leaders of the nation are occultists. The entirety of even the Christians were all, I mean, it was sort of like, if you read the book of Corinthians, the church of Corinth on steroids, everyone's engaging in prostitution. Their, their highest sales of everything in the nation were all do, uh, sexually related. Promiscuity through the roof, um, incest, just uh, extreme opioid addiction, alcohol addiction, running rampant, uh, just major drug use, deep economic crisis. I mean, horrific, horrific conditions, horrific poverty, uh, people dying, wars being fought between the gangs, horrendous in the entirety of the nation. And this is where God calls Miller to come and start a church. Now, wouldn't that be encouraging for the Lord to do that? So and if you're, I, want, I think this is important for us to know because I like to call this the backdrop of revival, that we need to understand, I think, I think at equally and in an equal portion that we need faithful revival to come, we need to understand the context through which it comes. Because of every revival that I've studied historically, not one, literally, I'm not exaggerating, not preaching, not one, that's a joke by the way, not one has happened in favorable times. Not one has happened in a time of peace. Not one has happened in a time where everything was going amazing, where the economy was great, where people were at ease. They all happened in times like this and much, much, much worse. Much worse. And I think it's with great intentionality that God does that because it's one thing if he comes and lifts the church out of slumber and brings awakening when things are going very well. How much more glorious is it when it's at these 11, 59, and 59 second moments. Deep darkness covering the earth, as it says in Isaiah 60, verse 1, and deep darkness the people, but the glory of the Lord is shining and rising in the midst of that. So, you know, one of the, a teaching that's very popular is, is says, I think the statement is, and it sounds really good, but it's not really true. And the statement is that whenever the light of Jesus comes, all darkness leaves. That's not really what happens. The activity of the Holy Spirit exacerbates the darkness because we have a real enemy who hates us. And so we actually need to be encouraged in the midst of darkness. Because God sends you as contrast with his radiance, his glory, his light. That's what shows people how much more splendor and glory rest upon the people of God as they see the contrast. They see how much different this is. And I want to read you something here from the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29. It says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what we have to realize in this, this is a dichotomy. This is the dichotomy of our whole Christian experience. And this was being written by... Whoever the author was, we don't know who authored Hebrews. I personally think it was Paul, but we don't know. Whoever it was is writing to the Hebrew people. And he's writing to them this entire book, and especially this chapter, the entirety of chapter 12, specifically to encourage them, do not shrink back, do not give up, because they were being tempted to leave the faith because of the trials and the persecution. So he's telling them two things that exist at the same time, another, another antinomy, a dichotomy of spiritual life, of our whole Christian experience, that you are the inheritors of an unshakable kingdom. Why? Because its king can't be shaken. The kingdom of God can't be shaken because King Jesus cannot be shaken. He's not voted in. He is Lord over the earth. Right? 
That's amazing news for us. At the same time, at the exact same time, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And so whether you realize it or not, all the shaking you're seeing right now is coming from the Lord. For years as we've been praying and and, uh, crying out what became known as the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we don't realize it, but every single time you prayed, God, your kingdom come, you have prayed for this shaking. You are praying, when you pray, your kingdom come, you're saying, come and dismantle, disrupt, and sever and strip away all earthly kingdoms, all that is inferior, all that was not birthed by your spirit, come and flatten it so that you can establish what it is you want to establish. That's what's happening here. And that's what was happening in 1949 with Miller. And so now I want to tell you the story. Um, Gosh, there's so much here that I'm not getting to. That's okay. So uh, it's very, very powerful. I wanted you guys to know what the what the climate was like. And the, this was a precursor, by the way. Have, you, have any of you ever heard of uh, the evangelist Tommy Hicks? So this was sort of the precursor to him in the 1954 outpouring that most people are familiar with. Hicks, by the way, went to that spiritist president to Juan Perrin. He was a minister in California, unknown, received a vision while he was ministering in California of uh, Argentina to go and rent a 25,000-person stadium. It's someone totally unknown. This is an impossible task that the Lord gives him. And again, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. He gives Tommy Hicks this vision, and Tommy has, saves, works up enough money to buy a one-way ticket to Argentina. He does it. He goes to, flying over to Argentina to Buenos Aires. On the way over, he gets an impression in his mind, Perrin. And he asks the stewardess on the plane, what is, this, what is Perrin? And she's like, you don't know? That's, that's our president, basically a dictator, occult practitioner, bringing the nation into deep darkness. And he lands, and he goes to one of Perrin's secretaries and a request to meet with him. And he prays for his secretary. His secretary gets healed. He was crippled. And meets with Perrin. And Perrin probably would have killed him had God not intervened. But at the time, Perrin was suffering from an eczema and other skin conditions that had become so severe, he was opting out of having any public appearances, no photos taken of him or anything. And Tommy's telling him the gospel when he says, well, could this God heal me? And he says, well, let's find out. And he puts his hand over Perrin, prays about 15 or 20 seconds. Perrin's skin became like a newborn baby. And he says... You've got the stadium, you've got the finances, you've got the backing of the nation of Argentina's government. Anything you need, you've got it. And it resulted in over 300,000 salvations and healings and deliverances. But all of that started in this terrible climate, and all of it started with this story. Edward Miller was, as I said, deeply disillusioned, discouraged. He's praying, he's crying out. And something else very interesting I can think that you should know um, is he decides, I'm going to go on a fast. He gets about 10 days into this fast, and the Lord speaks to him and says, what are you doing? And he's sort of like, hello, <laughs> right? You ever, have you ever had God ask you something, and you just sort of are like, you have to remind yourself that he's like really smart, you know, because you're like, what kind of a crazy question is this? And he's like, I'm fasting that you would send awakening to my nation, to my people, And the Lord spoke something to him that I think is really profound. And what the Lord spoke to him was this. An empty stomach is not the coin of heaven, but rather the blood of Jesus. Now, obviously the Lord is not anti-literal fasting. 
But I think his ultimate goal is to bring us to a revelation of Isaiah 68, that he's calling you to fast your life. And to realize that even in the spiritual disciplines, it's the blood of Jesus that brings it about. All of these things are a work of his grace. It's not through our efforts. And the Lord was bringing Edward to the place of realizing all these things you're trying to do, going door to door with the gospel tracts, the things that you're trying to establish and do on your own without my help, they're not working. And he says, I want you to call together a prayer meeting. Tell the people that, and at the time his church is fewer than 100 people, uh, and, it, and it was the largest church that was in the nation. Um, and he says, tell the people, come if they're prepared to pray from 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. If they're not prepared to pray and stay the whole four hours, don't even come. And so he's even more depressed that God tells him this because he's, if you read his, his book, uh, it's called Secrets of the Argentine Revival. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, amazing. I really, I, all of you should buy this book. And he's speaking about, I love reading his process, by the way, because another thing that's encouraging in revival is reading vulnerability. It's sort of like David and the Psalms, you know, all the things that we kind of try to tuck away in our heart. That we think if we don't voice it, maybe God doesn't know. Maybe he's not aware of it. He actually is saying, I want you to just gush it all out, lay it all out here. Be honest before me. And so he's, he's complaining to the Lord. He's like, God, I had an amazing, convenient time for the prayer meeting all last month, and only 20 people came. And now you're telling me to do this and tell them they can't even come unless they're going to pray from 8 to 12 p.m.? And God says, yes. He's like, all right. He does it. You know how many people he has come? Three. So there's four altogether. None of them wanted to be there. There was a woman who was described as very young and very, very shy. She was the wife of a man who was extremely backslidden and addicted. And there was an older woman who was there, and those were the three that came. And he's, he's even more discouraged, and he just goes on his knees, and he starts crying out, praying, praying. None of them are really praying with him. None of them are participating. They're all just kind of sitting there. If it were today, everybody would just be on Instagram, just scrolling through, liking posts. And he's fervently interceding and crying out, and he gets to the end of the four hours, and he's saying, did any of you feel like you heard anything from heaven at all? Nope. You can imagine how you would feel, right? Here you are, you're pressing in, you're plowing, you're, you're, he tried to quit over and over. He was walking away and God would do something and just pull him back in. It was like it was a, he was a fish and God had hooked him around the jaw. He was just reeling him in again and again and again every time he tried to walk away. And here he is, this is what the Lord has told him to do, and it's seemingly fruitless. And so this one lady says, well, I, I had something very small, but I feel so stupid. There's no way it's God. And he's like, what is it? At this point, he's basically like spiritually grabbing everyone by the shirt collars. What did you hear? And she says, well, I had this impression that I was just supposed to go up and make a fist and hit our pulpit that's in the center of the room. But I know it's not the Lord, and I'm not going to do it. He's begging her. She will not do it. So he ends the prayer meeting. And they're scheduled to come back three more nights. They come back the second night, same exact scenario. Third night, same scenario. On the final night, he finally says, okay, this is what we're going to do. All of us, one by one, we're going to march around this table, uh, similar to the Israelites marching around the wall of Jericho. We're all going to sing the song and worship the Lord, and one by one, towards the end of the song, we're all going to take our hand and hit the pulpit. Miller does it, nothing. The older woman does it, nothing. The husband does it, nothing. This is very important, very important, because it happened when the one who was received the rhema word who sovereignly heard this word from the Lord, when she hit it, instantly 
It was like a second wave of Pentecost. The, the literal wind from heaven, that they said like a tornado, swept into the room, flattened all of them on their faces. They were all screaming out in tongues, and that birthed the entirety of the Argentine revival. All from her doing this. Now, I picked that story not only because it's powerful, but because it illustrates all these things working together. It illustrates the obedience aspect, and it illustrates sovereignty. Obviously, that was a sovereign element. Otherwise, we would have all just fell on our faces when I did this. Right? So it's not about... It's not, it's not about the action in and of itself. It's about the obedience. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't how much fruit was eaten that got them kicked out. It wasn't the quantity of fruit. It was the quality of the disobedience. And the reverse is true when we decide to obey what it is that he commands. It's never about the action in and of itself. This is why God chooses to do things like this that are so bizarre. You ever wonder that? Why does he choose to do things in such a weird way again and again and again? Why doesn't he just give us like some steps to revival? He knows the tendency of the human heart to fall in love with a formula, to fall in love with a pattern. And he consistently wants you to be in love with the leading of his spirit, his voice, not the leading of steps or a model. Now, models are good and they're necessary for certain things, but that's not what he's wanting to do with us. He wants us to be led and governed by his voice. So I know, like, for us, if this happened for one of us today, we would start an e-course on pulpit striking and revival. Or we'd write a book and go on Sid Roth and have a whole thing about the secrets to the unfolding glory that happens when we're willing to strike the pulpit. And we'd have an activation. We'd have all of everybody come up and just strike the pulpit. And listen, I'm not, I'm not you know, knocking those things necessarily, but I am saying there's a danger when we reduce the grace of God to something formulaic. And the religious temptation is always to divorce principle from passion. And this is not what God is wanting to pull us into. It's, it's not about that she hit the pulpit. It's about the fact that she was willing to be obedient in the first place. And in that vein of obedience, oh gosh, 12 minutes left. All right. I think we, I think we can do this. I think we can do this. I want us to, uh, well, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read really quickly here. 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So the question is not, does God want to bring about revival, or does he want to bring about awakening? All the promises in Christ are yes. God loves the world more than we love the world. God loves his creation more than we do. God wants to touch, to heal, to restore more than we do. So the wrong, to ask, does he want to do it, is the wrong question. We need to think of it like this. His yes is hovering over the earth, and our yielded life becomes the amen. They meet, and that releases breakthrough. That releases the dunamis. That releases the power of the Holy Spirit. So we, we tend to think of all the promises of God and Christ are yes, or when, let's say you receive a prophetic word, a prophetic promise over your life. We think it's yes in Christ. Awesome. And so the enemy sort of uses that to deceive us and to kind of lulling into a Christian easy boy recliner, kind of a bit of apathy, and just saying, okay, he's going to bring it to pass, I just have to wait. And that's not what God is calling you to do. And one of Paul's spiritual sons, he had two that we know of in Scripture, Titus and Timothy, and at the end of his first epistle to his spiritual son, Timothy, he says, diligently guard what has been entrusted to you. Diligently guarding is a posture of warfare. It's a posture of fighting. That you actually go to war with the promises that are over your life. You don't just wait 
for it to come to pass. For example, I remember when I was traveling with Dr. Randy Clark all around the world, everywhere we would go, we would have people come up and say, pray for me, I had this word of my life that I'm going to have this healing ministry, and it was 20 years ago. And Randy would say, well, how many sick people are you praying for? Well, none yet. I'm waiting for the anointing for my healing ministry. Does that make sense? So that's, uh, you can't, if you've gotten a word, you're going to be moving in this realm of ministry. Don't wait for just a fire angel to show up and take a spiritual sword and, you know, put it in your hand and, and okay, now it's, it's going to be this big grandiose thing. Now, sometimes something like that may happen. But 99% of the time what happens is you receive a promise and that promise is in the form of a seed. That yes from God is in seed form. And so if you've gotten a word, you're going to have a healing ministry. Go and start praying for all the sick people you can. If you've gotten a word, you're going to have a ministry powerfully used in deliverance. Go and start finding people who are demonized. If you've gotten a word that you're going to be doing whatever it is, start taking steps towards that. And this is just a practical way of kind of how we partner with the Lord and seeing the manifestation of his promises. So remember that a prophetic word is never deliverance from personal responsibility. And especially in the charismatic movement, who I, of course, love the charismatic movement, but there are a couple of problems that have arisen. One of those is that we've become experts at decreeing and declaring and novices at hearing and obeying. So you're not going to declare your way into the manifestation of a promise. Void of your actions, void of your responsibility. God had given them this word, revival is going to come. He had given this word to Miller, but he also told him these instructions. You call this prayer meeting, you do this, you march around the pulpit so that this woman will feel free to strike it. And after that, all these further instructions that came, instructions to Tommy Hicks, go, pray for Perrin, request this meeting with him, pray for his secretary, rent this stadium, do these things. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's responsibility on our end to steward what it is that God gives. And a few more scriptural examples quickly to kind of show you a little bit more in the Bible of, and again, I know this is very much not exhaustive, but just a little bit more of an overview uh, of sovereignty and human agency sort of intersecting and how God honors petition. The first would be in 2 Kings chapter 20. It says, In those days, starting in verse 1, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, I'd say not really, this is not a Facebook prophet. This is Isaiah. (laughs) This is a pretty reputable, accurate guy, right? Wouldn't you agree? Right? The prophet Isaiah son of Amoz, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. Doesn't that seem a little bit confusing? Here's one more. Well, I won't have, don't have time to read it, I believe, but if you later on look and study Exodus 33, essentially what happens is that they're on the wilderness journey. The Lord speaks to Moses when he's asking them to continue on with his presence, and he basically, Brian Starley translation is, I'm so annoyed with all of them for all their complaining that if I go, I'm probably going to kill them. So I'm not going to go. I'll send an angel. 
you and the angel go hang out, have fun, lead them. I'm going to hang back. And this is what God says to Moses. And Moses goes and he says, if you don't come with us, I'm not going to go. It's your presence, God, upon your people that, sh- that distinguishes us, that sets us apart. And God says, okay, I'll come with you. And he does. And that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? You remember things like, God is not a man that he should lie, and he's not a man that he should change his mind. And he's like, okay, it seems like he's changing his mind here a little bit. Now, I've also had sometimes when I've taught this, some people have said, well, that's just in the Old Testament. So glad when people bring that up because the best and the clearest example is in the New Testament in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. There is zero intentionality in the mind of Jesus to perform a sign. Exact opposite. He tells her, woman, this is not my time. It was not the time of his revealing because he knew the moment that this process of healing, deliverances, and resurrection start, they're going to do things such as when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they put out a bounty on Lazarus and on Jesus. He knows when my revealing as Messiah begins, it's going to start a very rapid process that will lead to my crucifixion on Golgotha. And it was not time in his mind to perform a sign. And Mary goes to her son, to the Lord, petitions him to turn the water into wine to save and revive the feast. And what does he do? He does it. Now, I don't think that God is changing his mind. I'll tell you what I think. Do I, is it okay if I go a couple minutes over? It's okay? All right, I want to check. I want to be honoring of the house, but are you guys good? You guys, all right. I know sometimes people get hungry and, you know, want to go and everything. I, I, I won't go, I won't go too, too long over, but I only get this morning with you guys and then tonight, uh, tomorrow night, so I'm trying to cram in as much as I can. This is what I think is happening. Several years ago, I was listening to someone uh, preaching, just, I don't remember even where, streaming it on YouTube or something, and they were talking about Smith Wigglesworth. Have any of you ever heard of him? So, amazing apostle of faith. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, study his life. It's tremendous miracles walking into glory. And he's quoting Smith, who several years ago I didn't know very much about. And Smith was famous for saying something. And so he's quoting what Smith would say, which was this If God's not moving, I'll move him. And now, the, as soon as I heard that, I was so offended. And I went to the Lord. You know, sometimes we go in intercession, sometimes we go in complaining, and we think it's intercession. But I went and, you know, complain a session, I'll call it. And I'm grumbling. And, you know, have you ever tried to out-theology God? It doesn't work very well. So I'm, like, it's talking about how terrible this is. And he's just graciously saying, well, Brian, what's your problem? And I said, because. And I start trying to walk him through the scripture. Everything, everything that I've been reading and looking at and studying regarding your sovereignty leads me to believe that this is just arrogance. And the Lord says, why is it arrogant? And what's your name again? Reese. So Reese will be... God, and I said, because I think it's crazy for me to insinuate that I could, and this is the exact phrase I use, I said, that God, that I could take your hand and move you to heal this person, that I could take your hand and move you to deliver, move you to save. Good, great job playing God. So I'm going on this thing with the Lord, and he speaks to me lovingly, but in a rebuke, and he says, you're right, son, but you're only half right. And I said, okay, what do you mean? And he said, Smith did move me. Not by moving my hand, but by moving my heart. And that was a tremendous paradigm shift for me. So it was not arrogance on Smith's part. And I don't think God is changing his mind. This is what I think is happening. And this is what I think Smith understood. God has things that he looks for as it pertains to surrender and a willingness to obey, to die to yourself in a sacrifice. And in the midst of sacrifice, we know from the old covenant, fire always falls. 
So Smith saying, if God's not moving, I'll move him, is he's, he was saying, if no one else is willing to lay themselves on the altar, I'll be the one to do it. And he knew, if I do this, then God will meet me. He will respond. This is what Smith understood. It was not arrogance. And this is what the Lord is looking for us today because revival requires real estate. And when I say that, I don't mean buildings. I mean that the first piece of real estate he looks for to occupy is right here. He looks for places of habitation. He looks for dwelling places, for resting places. And this is what he found in men like Smith Wigglesworth and women like Catherine Coleman and Mariah Woodworth Etter and so many others in the George Mueller's and the Evan Roberts and the Welsh Revival and uh, so many others. I want to tell you guys one more very, very quick story, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray over you. And I feel the Lord pulling me in this direction. Because um, I think the, what stops many from a willingness to sacrifice is a fear of disappointment. Earlier I mentioned Mariah Woodworth Eder, something that I love that she said is, I asked God to grant to me the same power that he gave the Galilean fishermen to anoint me for service. I came to him like a child asking for bread, and I looked for it. God did not disappoint me. And if you read anything about her, she had one of the most amazing ministries of miracles since the early apostles. Tremendous, tremendous signs of wonders. Um, the fear of disappointment is ensnaring many of us from being willing to step into our destiny. Because somehow, deep down, we're thinking, if I do my part, he's not going to do his. For whatever reason, or I'm inadequate, and this look, doesn't look like what I wanted it to look like. And we need to realize that in the midst of it looking not what we want it to look like, God will still bring about moves of his spirit. He's wanting to change the way that we think, wanting it to bring us into a greater place of trust. So the quick story I want to tell you is this. How many of you have ever heard of a man named Edward Kimball? Probably no one. One person. All right, awesome. Edward Kimball led Dwight Moody to the Lord, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody led, by the way, that's part one, I just realized, of kind of this story. No one knows who Edward Kimball is, yet he's the one who led Dwight Moody to the Lord. As you're going about and speaking to people and leading to the Lord and evangelizing, you have no idea who it is that you're reaching. You could potentially lead the next Randy Clark to the Lord out at the KFC. Literally. It's, it's amazing to think about these things, the things that God orchestrates, that we have no idea. We're just sort of blissfully, you know, ignorant. And meanwhile, he's working about these amazing things through our life. So Edward Kimball leads Moody to the Lord. Moody leads a man to the Lord by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman leads a man to the Lord by the name of Billy Sunday, very famous fiery evangelist. Billy Sunday leads a man to the Lord by the name of Mordecai Ham. Have any of you ever heard of him? So Mordecai Ham worked alongside of my wife Camden's great-great-grandfather. My great, wife's great-great-grandfather, uh, his name was Harold Earthman, he was the one who did all the administration and organizing for Mordecai Ham's crusades. And they were putting on one in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I've read copies of Mordecai's journals. They spent a lot of money expecting a huge turnout. They have a big turnout. Mordecai preaches his guts out, and only one person responds to the altar call. Like, talk about what you would see as a, as a flop. And they're so discouraged. I talked to people uh, around Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where Harold is from, and where Mordecai would go and hang out with him often, who talked about how disappointed they were in that crusade and how much they saw it as a failure. And in Mordecai's journals, he writes, Crusade, Charlotte, North Carolina, 1934, complete failure in ministry, only one 16-year-old saved. What he didn't know was that the 16-year-old was Billy Graham. True story. And what they perceived as this is our greatest failure it was literally their greatest triumph. 
the most fruitful, one of the most fruitful evangelists the world has ever seen, one of the most tremendous revivalists came out of the moment of what they perceived as their greatest weakness. So think about that if you're scared that God is somehow going to disappoint you, that he somehow can't do it through you. He can do it through the Edward Kimballs, through this person, through that person, but he can't do it through me for whatever reason. And remember that no matter how obscure of a task he gives you, if he tells you to hit the pulpit, hit the pulpit. I could tell you, if I had time, story after story after story of these just bizarre things and these simple acts of obedience to his sovereign word brings about these moves of the Holy Spirit. And with that being said, I want to stop here uh, because I'm just thankfully only about three minutes over. And I want to pray over you and we'll see kind of if the Lord does anything from there. Uh, and by the way, I do believe that anytime we're doing things like this or in moments of impartation, first of all, when the Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2, it says he filled the whole house. Now, we believe in laying hands on people. I don't think I have to lay hands on you for anything to happen. And if any of you were scared about the virus, by the way, I had it in March, and now have antibodies, so you're safe if I lay hands on you. Um, so I don't believe that I have to lay hands on you. Secondly, I don't believe there has to be a strong, visible outward manifestation for God to be doing a very deep work. Really. As I love when he does those things. I see them a lot, but I don't think it has to happen. There was a man, a uh, pastor of a large church in the height of Toronto that flew all the way from Russia to have Randy pray for him. Randy prays for him. It has a private meeting. He doesn't even bat an eye. He's so upset. On the plane ride back, he writes to Randy and says, I was very disappointed when you prayed for me and nothing happened. And Randy writes back and says, so was I. No manifestation whatsoever. He gets back to his church, stands up to preach that morning, and when he starts to read through the announcements, people start falling out of their chairs and rolling around laughing, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, healing, demons coming out. So don't, don't, don't look for just, is there a manifestation? Trust that there is something, even if it's not visible, that is tangible, that's real, that the Lord is releasing to you, okay? So let's do this. Let's stand up together. I want us to just put our hands out in front of us, and I'm going to just quickly pray into this sort of... Uh, coming revival, I believe that the Lord wants to extend not just to, uh, to, in a general sense, to the U.S. and to other nations, but specifically for Oklahoma City, because there are tremendous promises of God that are around this region. There's tremendous history of men like A. Allen and William Branham and others ministering here, and God is jealous over his deposits. These things aren't, they're not just arbitrary works that he does. They're things that he deeply cares for. He's extending himself when he comes and when he brings moves of his spirit, of his presence. So Lord, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the promises over Oklahoma, over Oklahoma City. God, I thank you for the amazing uh, legacy and lineage that has been here in times past. And thank you for what's here in the present. Lord, thank you for grand arrangements.